Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Episode 9, Becoming Mouldy. Before we get going, many of you may have heard of the tragedy that has happened recently in Christchurch. A shooting at two separate mosques with approximately 50 dead at time of recording, with just under that amount in hospital, some in critical condition, including a four-year-old. I don't wish to talk about the politics or the motivations of this, as that is not what we're here for. But to put that in perspective, that amount of people in New Zealand would equal about 3,100 deaths in a shooting in the US based on population. Thank you Di Francis on Twitter for that statistic. This sort of thing is, as many have put it, unprecedented in Aotearoa's history. It just doesn't happen. But it has happened, and to a city that has already suffered so much from an earthquake that effectively levelled it. So we need to band together like we have done in the past. I encourage you all to help your friends and family who may feel unsafe due to these attacks, or donate to LaunchGood and give a little pages that have been set up to aid the victims and their families, which I'll put a link to in the description of this episode. Kia kaha. Stay strong, Christchurch. Last time, we had a retelling of the Māori creation myth about Rangi and Papa being forced apart and their son Tane, god of the forests and birds, covering his parents in amazing garments. It also involved a war between the land and the seabirds for some reason. The calls are used in that, by the way, are real calls from the birds mentioned, or at least the closest thing to them. Such as in the case of the grey duck, the thinking is that they interbred so much with mallard ducks and others that there aren't really any left, only hybrids. But I thought chucking those in would be a nice little tidbit. There's also the matter of what I think is pretty obvious Christian influences. I don't know this for certain, and I have basically zero evidence to back this up, so keep that in mind, but the fact that Tane is said to have, quote, rested seven days after his mighty labours, end quote, I think is suspiciously close to the Christian god resting after making the world in seven days. But again, that's just me. I'd really like to know if you guys are enjoying these retellings of Māori stories. I really like making them, and the analytics seem to suggest you guys like listening to them, perhaps even more than the historical episodes, but it would be great to hear some more specific feedback. You may have also noticed I did a bit of a rant about Tuatara. I was thinking of doing more of that type of stuff. By that I don't mean hastily recorded and poorly edited, I mean more stuff on the native animals and plants of Aotearoa. I do realise that's perhaps a little out of the scope of the podcast, but New Zealand's native species are important to our national identity in so many different ways, I feel it could be worth talking about the weird and wonderful creatures and flora we have in more focused episodes. But again, let me know via Facebook, Twitter or email. Anyway, let's crack into some history. We left off the Māori settlers in a bit of a bind. A bind which isn't necessarily going to get better. By the end of the colonial period, likely around the early 15th century, moa and other big game were completely extinct, totaling 32 different species of terrestrial and freshwater birds, 34% of New Zealand's bird species at the time, along with a species of bat and an unknown amount of invertebrates and reptiles. These birds were the majority of the Māori diet up until this point, and losing them was a big blow. This meant an increasing reliance on other food sources like berries, bracken fern and other foraged foodstuffs. They also moved onto the smaller birds that had been ignored in the past due to the sheer value for money a single mower could give you. 
Birds like Wicker, Kiridu, Tui, Kiwi, and others. Snaring was the preferred option to try and catch these birds, since using a spear was difficult in the dense forest of Aotearoa, and Māori didn't have any other projectile weapons. The main source of protein tended to be fish and shellfish, given its easy access and abundance near most settlements, but this did depend on region and area. This movement away from large animals can be seen in the middens of various archaeological sites. Moa and seal remains are usually found at the bottom, with fish and shellfish in the upper layers. Protein was still an important part of the diet, but their focus now shifted to more intensive horticulture, specifically the kumara, which became a huge part of the diet and perhaps the catalyst to the development of Māori culture. The burning of large swaths of forest over the last couple of centuries or so encouraged the growth of ferns, which was a better habitat for weka and cleared land for more farming. Insects were also quite keen on this new landscape and thrived, which would have sustained water birds and freshwater fish. Gardening, though, was still the biggest and most important source of food. With only a few sources of starch, all of which had to be foraged, kumara was a vital resource, and Māori were cranking it up to 11. After an area was fired, the soil was modified with sand or gravel dug from nearby pits that would be used for storage. This was a huge undertaking, as modifying one hectare of soil required digging, transporting in flax kete, baskets, and spreading of 1,300 metres cubed of material. 3,000 hectares of gardens, as found in Waikato, would require 4 million metres cubed of material to be dug up and distributed. To further illustrate how big of an undertaking this was, Athol Anderson, in a 2016 lecture, compares it to a 140 metres squared house, which would need 16 metres cubed of sand, gravel and cement for the floor slab. This means that the amount of material that these people shifted was equal to 250,000 house slabs, or four times the size of the Clyde Dam in central Otago, which is New Zealand's third largest dam. With the concentration of food in smaller areas, and the need to be near these gardens, population density increased as communities grew around a common cause. These associations were also partly based on kinship, and began the process to developing the ideas of the whānau, hapu and iwi, family, sub-tribe and tribe. With kumara being a plant that only produces a crop once a year at the same time of year, the need for storage was vitally important, and so was the need to protect that store. By that I mean, if your neighbouring community didn't have a very good harvest one year, but you did, it was only natural that they were going to attempt to take your kumara. You and your community would naturally defend yourself, and, win or lose, you would try to retaliate eventually. This became more and more frequent as competition for resources increased, and the need to defend self or group mana meant a development into a more martial culture. And there was no escape from it. Once your neighbours started developing these ideas, then you either had to conform to defend yourself, or risk losing it all. Part of this was the rise of the pa. Fortified hilltop settlements originally used to defend stores of kumara from attackers, with construction beginning around the mid-16th century. Pa concentration was the highest in the northern North Island, which coincides with the region that had the highest kumara production, which would make sense. I'll put a picture on the website with this episode that shows you where these pa were located. 
This all ties back into the increasing population density as people came together in larger communities with a need for mutual defence, though it has been thought that perhaps Pa were more than just practical structures with military purposes. Like a medieval castle, a Pa could be used to show status and strengthen mana, but more than that, they could have a religious element too, as the Pa were likely where religious items like ancestral carvings were held, making the Pa a sanctuary for the spirits of the whānau, hapu or iwi. Within these settlements, we also see, in the arrangement of the buildings, that there was likely a central meeting house, a marae, or at least the precursor to what would become the marae. Now, the problem with talking about this period is that the pressures and responses of the population weren't always uniform across the country. Pretty much everything we have talked about so far took place in the northern North Island, by that I mean north of the Taranaki region. And you can see that in the picture of the pa that I've put up on the website. As we have discussed before, the lower South Island, south of Banks Peninsula, was a much colder and harsher environment than the more northern regions. And that was only getting worse due to climate change from the Little Ice Age occurring in the northern hemisphere. This climate meant they relied much more heavily on the big game birds to feed the population, and this can be seen in the large amount of moa butchery sites found along the east coast. With the loss of these birds, settlements in the Otago and Southland regions were being fragmented, with some areas, particularly on the southern coast, being abandoned entirely. We have evidence that shows kumara growing in the Kaikoura region prior to this period, but in the late 17th century we see a 150km retreat north to Tasman Bay, Kapiti Coast, Castle Point Line. We do see evidence of forest regrowth in the Marlborough Sounds though, which gave rise to an idea that there was an ancient race in Aotearoa prior to Māori when the areas were cut down again in the 19th century. With changes in population density and abandoning of settlements, people were moving and migrating. These migrations began at the start of the transitional period in the early 1500s or so. In the areas with a large amount of horticulture, like in the north, Migrations tended to be short and in a variety of directions, likely to wherever the closest par was. In areas lacking major horticulture, particularly in the Hawke's Bay, people tended to migrate southeast and into the South Island. Now, this is pretty interesting. As I've just told you, it was pretty shit down there right now. We even see settlements being abandoned in the Wellington region too, so why move that way? It could have been due to increases in population, as some regions were seeing, meant people had to move somewhere to find resources, especially as Hawke's Bay was experiencing lower temperatures and wetter conditions at this time, resulting in a lower crop yield. Archaeologists and historians still aren't sure though what the causes may have been. Another social change that may have occurred in this period is the appearance of slavery. Slavery is an interesting thing, it's terrible and awful, but it's something that humans have done pretty much since we discovered that we could. All across the world, we don't know much about slaves, mainly because the people writing things down or talking about things didn't care about slaves. There are many different types, like the Roman style, where the person could sell themselves into slavery and later buy their freedom, or the chattel slavery that most will be familiar with, where a person is considered property, afforded no rights, and can be bought and sold like an object. Slavery also blurs into other systems like serfdom, 
but we don't want to get too into the weeds of it here. We know there was slavery in the early 19th century, which increased as a response to greater need to farm potatoes to trade for muskets. And it has been suggested that this could be indicative of a similar rise in the Māori transitional period, although historians aren't sure and we don't know much about it. The thought is that due to the land producing large amounts of food and with more land that could be used to expand on that, there wasn't enough free people to perform all the work necessary. This, combined with an increasingly martial society, which was already fighting neighbouring groups, likely created an ideal situation for the development of the practice. This potentially eased off as populations increased, giving access to more free labour. Along with immaterial culture, material culture was changing too. All throughout the podcast, I've called tangata whenua Māori. But that isn't strictly true. Prior to this period, the people I have been calling Māori would have resembled more closely to East Polynesian cultures in their art, tools and ideas than Māori encountered by Europeans. This period is called the transitional phase in part due to these East Polynesian people transitioning into a society more closely resembling what you today might recognise as a Māori culture. This period is where we see heitiki arise, pendants worn around the neck depicting people, usually women, and was associated with fertility. Made of ponamu and occasionally whalebone, these were highly prized. In general, we see a move away from larger necklaces and pectoral ornaments to smaller ear and neck pendants. We also see changes in the style of combs, tattoo chisels, rock art and other objects from an East Polynesian style to a South Polynesian Māori style. Part of the reason art and tools were changing into a more unique flavour was due to Māori now being mostly isolated from their Polynesian cousins and having to adapt to a totally new environment with different materials and mediums available, such as flax to make fibre for clothes, new types of wood for carving, and different types of food that needed new ways of preparation and storing. As the generations passed, and Māori became more distinct from other Polynesian cultures, oral knowledge of the homelands, along with stories of heroes and ancestors, diminished. They were now being replaced by stories about the more recent migration and survival in the new land. This isn't to say, though, they forgot where they came from. It just changed into a more mythical Hawaii rather than a defined place. That also isn't to say that their former culture didn't influence the way that they interpreted the world around them. Māori is still considered a Polynesian culture, and many places in Aotearoa were named after places in Hawaii, and the gods of Māori were brought with them from East Polynesia. They just had a slightly different form. Maui is found all throughout Polynesia in many stories, but he took on a unique Māori flavour when they brought him to New Zealand, like fishing up the North Island. As the population density increased, we also see the social distance increase too. You could no longer know everyone who lived around you as there was just too many people living in the same area, and combined with increased territoriality meant long distance interaction was hindered. This in particular affected trade and the flow of goods. We no longer see the obsidian pieces from Mere Island make it all the way down to the South Island. Instead, South Island Māori were reusing older pieces or breaking down larger blocks to create the all-important cutting implements. In the North Island, 
local resources were being favoured over those that were no longer coming in from further afield. As mentioned in episode 6, adzes from Waido Bar and the wider Marlborough region were used all over New Zealand, but by this period, much of the supply of material had dried up. This resulted in adzes that seemed to be modified from their original design into forms that would become characteristic of the Māori of future generations. Adzes in the past reflected status and ancestral coherence with them being passed down from one generation to the next. But during this period, they transitioned into being just a tool for a particular job. No longer could you claim your special ads came from a place renowned for its top quality punamu and skilled crafters, because everyone knew your ads was made from local basalt and made by Widamu down the road. Wrapped into this was the loss of village crafting centres we saw in the past and the collapse of entire industries. For example, one-piece fishing hooks were usually made of mower bone and the southern silkrete blade industry was held up by large butcheries, all of which relied on an animal that no longer existed. We have spent a long time talking about what these people were like, what they believed, what they ate, but let's look at one person in particular. Remains of a woman in Palliser Bay, southeast of modern Wellington, have been studied by Helen Leach and Philip Horton of the University of Otago, and give us an interesting look into the life of a person in this period. They found her teeth had significant wear on them, indicating an abrasive diet, likely one relying on starchy plants rather than protein, indicating she lived in this transitional period. She was 35 to 40 years old when she died, which was not uncommon given her likely physically demanding lifestyle. She was 162 centimetres tall, fairly robust build, was right-handed, and gave birth to two to four children. By the time of her death, she was also suffering arthritis on the spine, again likely due to a harsh and physically demanding lifestyle. She lived in a village on the north bank of the Makatukutuku River near the east coast of the bay, but seasonal trips were likely made to catch birds like tuis or parakeets and to gather berries. Like other parts of the country, their gardens grew mostly kumara, which was harvested in autumn and stored in enclosed pits near their cooking sheds. These gardens were made clear by firing the forest on the ridges behind the village and their proximity to the village meant it was occupied year-round. When she wasn't gardening, she was likely gathering pawa, limpets, crayfish and other foraged seafood from the nearby bay. As she did this, she would be able to see the men on a good day out in their waka catching fish like barracuda and kahawai by pulling their lures behind them. In summer, these fish would have been dried to store them. These days would have been spent splitting eels and other oily fish, hanging them up for drying and weaving kete from flax for storage. As the warmer summer gave way to a harsher winter, her workload would have reduced, and she was lucky to have fresh water and firewood close at hand. When she did pass, she was buried next to a whanau and a pet dog. These couple of centuries or so was a time of dramatic change for the early Māori settlers. They had spent considerable effort and resources changing the land to fit their needs, and in response, the land was pushing back, changing their way of life. Now these East Polynesian explorers were becoming South Polynesian Māori, the children of Tu Matauinga, the god of war. What they didn't know, of course, 
was that elsewhere in the world, a Spanish-funded Italian explorer by the name of Christopher Columbus had found the New World, fueling the Age of Discovery, setting Europe and the soon-to-be British Empire on a collision course with the Tangata Whenua of Aotearoa. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can reach me through email at historyaotearoa at gmail.com or Twitter at historyaotearoa or Facebook at History Aotearoa New Zealand Podcast. Aotearoa spelled A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. If you like the podcast, or not, it would be much appreciated if you could give us a review on iTunes. It helps us grow and reach more people to hopefully get us all the way to the number one history podcast in New Zealand. As always, hari tu atu, hockey to my. See you next time.